Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Ripple Effect. I'm Dan Loney. And today, we're doing something a little different. We've handpicked some of the most impactful, thought-provoking moments from our episodes over the last year and compiled them into a year-in-review episode. So whether you're a regular or tuning in for the first time, prepare for a journey through what The Ripple Effect has offered this year. Are there common mistakes that leaders make when they're in time of crisis? So the biggest common mistake is actually part of human nature. So go back to your five-year-old self and you get caught doing something you're not supposed to do, right? And the first thing you say is, it wasn't me, right? We immediately want to deny our involvement in something bad. That carries with us even into our adulthood. So when we experience a crisis, we assume the crisis is something bad. We don't want to be associated with it. So we tend to engage in avoidance behavior or denial behavior, all of these things that disassociate us from that event. And that's really problematic because that's time and energy that we could be using to uh, identify the appropriate communication and narrative that we want to put around this. That could be time and attention that we could be doing something more uh, proactive to help address the situation as opposed to denying. So that's, I think, the one common thing that many leaders engage in. Well, and certainly then when you talk about what we went through with the pandemic, but it, it obviously plays out in a variety of different potential crises, is the element of stress. Because w- when you have this, I think there's a lot within your body, within your mindset that just amps up the level of stress that you deal with. Absolutely. So in the research, and this is long-standing research, what we find is that in times of stress or times of threat, when people feel particularly vulnerable, um, they engage in something called threat rigidity. So there's an external threat. We instinctively, our body becomes rigid. We become more narrow in our thinking. We become less creative. We become more restricted to the people with whom we're going to interact. So all of that restriction, that rigidity then prevents us from being able to really engage in effective problem solving. What do you say to those people that also are concerned about the issue of office collaboration or of losing something because you have people working remotely? I don't want to dismiss those concerns. I mean, I think there are tremendous benefits to remote working in terms of kind of the efficiency of not commuting, in terms of the flexibility, some people just prefer it. Um, frankly, for all, some companies as well, um, we can talk about this, kind of the lower real estate costs, broader recruitment, all sorts of benefits. There are real costs. We don't have as strong evidence on this as we would like, but I think the anecdotal evidence suggests that we don't collaborate as well. We don't build networks as well. We don't communicate quite as effectively as when we're in person. And that's where I think the debate over this gets a little silly, right? You have some people who are only, there are huge costs, we can't do this. And there are other people like, (laughs) huge benefits, we must do this. And the reality is there are costs and benefits, right? Um, The big costs, so collaboration, I think tends to be a little less effective. I think the other big concern is about developing people. That I think particularly junior employees tend to learn a lot through just watching the people around them. Through observation, they're losing out on that. Then you get less mentoring when you're not around people. So I think that some of the companies, I think, that have have taken a harder line on bringing people back in, so say the investment banks, some of them 
they tend to have a lot of junior people and place a really high emphasis on kind of skill building through working together. It's not crazy that they kind of feel they need to bring people back. So yes, there are um, there are real costs. Like I said, I mean, if you've got a two-hour commute, you need some really high costs in order to outweigh kind of, you know, I'm going to make you spend two hours a day coming in to do this. But yeah, you see both sides. If you step back, you think about what is what is branding and, and how does it fit into the overall context of the organization? It's huge because in some senses, you know, we think about branding and we're sometimes fooled because we think it's, well, it's a picture, it's a tagline, it's a logo. Uh, and certainly brands have external markers that communicate to the world. This is where we are and how how you can find us. Uh, but if you step back and you think about it a little bit more generally, a brand is really a meaning system. It really is a way to communicate to a group of people, a marketplace. These are my values and this is what I stand for. This is my mission. And so branding has a much deeper kind of impact. And hopefully the smart organizations, services, companies, et cetera, uh, understand that distinction. And they're working very hard to make sure that what they believe they stand for is what the marketplace actually perceives. Why is it do you think we've kind of had these narratives pop up and 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 really in many cases they have taken hold uh in with some people over the last few years? I think it's uh not just last few years like I think that I've seen this kind of trends going on like every time we see a potentially transforming technology that could affect work, right? So we see that back in the days industrial revolution the Luddites movement, right? Those people who literally burned the looms that actually automated the process of making garments. And turns out that, you know, having these uh, looms that effectively accelerates the process of making garments did not make these people lose their jobs. We actually see an increase in employment for people who can effectively use these new automated tools. Like then, you know, we see the same thing with Excel. It's like, oh, it's going to take over, it's going to replace accountants. It never happened, right? So every time we see a technology that could potentially, you know, change the way we work, change our lives, and we, I think there's like a human visceral reaction to it. And especially we tend to overestimate what a technology can do and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my job now. And I think it's really important to take back to think about what exactly is that technology doing before, you know, we make any strong decisions, especially the policymakers. How do you think also the, the dynamic of the online entity like Zillow and, and other entities out there have the opportunity to really kind of shape what the, the, the industry is going to look like over the next couple of decades? Yeah, well, the, the industry has certainly shifted to having a much stronger online presence. As we've said before, you know, housing markets move slowly. Um, they're extremely durable assets. Um, and they use a lot of antiquated systems uh, in uh, in the way in which transactions occur. I think the way in which we're seeing a rise of fintech uh, mortgage lenders, we're seeing more innovation on the mortgage underwriting through through some of the fintech tools. Um, we're seeing more, certainly in terms of the way people shop for houses, shopping online, or in, in some cases during COVID, not even visiting the property before making an offer. So I think we're definitely seeing some action there, I, I think, again, it comes back to the size and scale of the U.S. housing market. The market is enormous. And thinking about a lot of these fintech players, 
Right now, they're carving off relatively small slices of a giant market. It's extremely profitable to do that. You can run a great business doing so, but it doesn't shift the, the overall tenor of the market. And I think one of the myths that we're hearing going around right now about you know, the role of um, you know, a few large institutional buyers uh, sort of steering the, the overall U.S. housing market in one d- direction or another, they're just not big enough players to have that kind of impact. And so you know, they may have an impact on, on a subset of neighborhoods. Certainly, you know, the suburbs around Phoenix or the suburbs around a- Atlanta may have had um, some pretty big effects from uh, you know, the push towards single-family rentals, for instance. Um, but I think at a national scale, they're just not there um, at the moment, and they might never get to that scale because of how big the market is. So what are some of the, the other big questions that we need to look at right now around the topic of women in leadership? So I actually think there's a really interesting opportunity here, Dan, because what we we're at a place in our scholarship where we know a lot about the problems. We've documented the problems, lack of representation, the leaky pipeline, the glass ceiling, the glass cliff subtle forms of bias, benevolent sexism, lack of mentorship and sponsorship, right? Like all of those are things that we know are problems. But what we need more work on is, or are, solutions <laughs> to those problems. Um, one of the things I'm most proud about uh, in this work is that we we identify a solution, a practical, actionable solution that we can start to make a difference in people's lives and their effectiveness in organizations. And so, you know, more work that examines women's careers, more work that examines how we can get both men and women to be allies in addressing these types of issues. I think that those are the opportunities that we have to really make a difference. The growth that we have seen around luxury retail, especially in the last few years, that's something that's going to be with us for a while. And maybe to a degree, this is a kind of a connection with the younger generation right now, that that's that that component that they're looking for as they grow and, and, and move into different segments of their lives. Absolutely. So I don't think that uh, there are that many products that speak to human psychology, consumer psychology, or the psychology of an entire society as luxury goods. Uh, luxury goods really tell us something about how we try to perhaps separate ourselves from others, get ahead in life, try to to increase our social mobility. It's really trying to create about trying to create opportunities for ourselves in terms of either economic benefits or or social status benefits. So in that sense, I don't expect much to change. The way that we try to signal our status or signal how we are different from others may change over time. We may be focusing more on perhaps in some case material goods, in another case experiences. In another case, perhaps we focus more on signaling or cultural capital. We want to show that we know something that others do not know. We may change the the channel or the format through which we show things about ourselves, but these are all speaking to the same psychology of, again, trying to, to signal status. And there will be price tags that are attached to it because it's hard hard for people to to perhaps replicate or or um, attain. So there is going to be an industry and there's going to be an industry reaction. Luxury goods are not going away. 
as we have a bigger growing middle class in developing countries, the, the need for perhaps, again, luxury goods will continue to grow and we'll continue to see signaling in one way or another. Obviously, we've seen a run of inflation, uh, unprecedented that we haven't seen in such a long period of time. So then I guess with all of that money kind of awash in the in people's pockets, it's probably not a surprise to see them even spending when you've got that level of inflation in the economy. Because, as you said, we were we were blocked out of a lot of this for such a, you know, such a period of time. Yes, I, I will say this is true. I mean, you know, as, as you point out, in, in general, uh, when you have interest rates going up and inflation at high levels, uh, usually this is the kind of things that will uh, push people to spend less. Uh, but then I think on the other hand, what we have is the dynamics of going out of COVID and the fact that uh, people have all these uh, missed experiences and things that they want to do. Uh, and, you know, this was certainly very strong in the first year after COVID, but I think it still has an effect. Um, and then uh, the, the psychology that has changed, the fact that people now say, uh, you know, who knows when I will be able to do it again. So I should probably just do it now. So I, so I think this is kind of a counter effect to the inflation and the interest rate and pushing people to spend more despite of uh, these traditional economic forces. Careers are essentially tournaments. And uh, the way you get a promotion is to be good, but also to be better than your peers. And that led to a dynamic in the experience of the four-day work week, how many people actually took work home. Because they not only just wanted to get the work done, but they wanted to excel. They they were like contractually obligated to leave because these are un these were union jobs in the Volkswagen place, and they did then they continued to work at home so that they you know could win in this tournament, and that was something that led them to pressure among their peers to do the same. So it was not just you, Dan, because you're a well-known overachiever, you can't stop working, right? But then you know the, your peers at other. Um, um, you know, executive education or business school or radio stations will do the same. So this then led to like a contagion effect across the, the place. And that led to a, uh, a view by many employees that this was actually quite more stressful because um, the, the expectations of performance uh, remained the same. But they were not really adjusted to the fact that they had 20% less time to work. And that put actually more pressure and more stress onto the employees. Historically, when you think about recession, in air quotes, uh, there's usually some sort of shock that, that really kind of sets up the concept or the actual recession from occurring when you look back at history, correct? Yes. Again, yes and no based on the, the Fed's role. The Fed can slow an economy down and then typically uh, something comes along that sort of breaks uh, with that uh, Fed tightening. So in... 2007, that was the housing market that that really kind of broke. And then the financial system kind of went down uh, with it and really accelerated uh, accelerated the collapse. Uh, and of course, with the, with the recent, the most recent recession, uh, the Fed started tightening, but there were really no signs of a meaningful recession until all of a sudden the pandemic hit. And that, of course, had nothing to do with the Fed or the financial markets or anything that the U.S. consumers could have done. 
Um, so yeah, sometimes uh, an external shock to, to to cause a really major recession. Um, if there's if no such external shock comes, the Fed can slow down the economy to the uh, to the level that that people would call uh, kind of a soft landing. The problem is it's very hard to engineer a soft landing. You, you can you can pre- bring the plane the plane down, and then something happens in the very last bit right before you hit the runway, and all of a sudden it's not so soft anymore. I think that's kind of what what happened uh, in in 2008, and of course, you know, you can't blame the Fed for 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 2020, but in 2008 and 2001, sort of a soft landing. Yeah, it was a recession, but it was a fairly short, fairly painless, you could say, recession after the collapse of the dot com bubble. Obviously, a lot of these companies have had to take an omni-channel approach uh, to be able to have success because there are so many touch points that are out there for them to try and reach the consumer right now. Yes, yes. And I, I think it's important for those uh, for those retailers to keep in mind that customers are omni-channel. And, and, and in that sense, it, it is, I think, a fictitious effort to try to characterize a particular customer as an online customer, a brick-and-mortar customer. I mean, we are all omnichannel. We walk in the store with our phone on the hand. <laughs> we leave the store empty-handed because we know that we can order when we are home or the other way around. We're at home, we find something we like, and say, I'm going to go to the store and check it out. And I think that the retailers need to be aware of this because, for example, the customer will arrive to the store with a lot more experience and knowledge about the product because it's been searching and, and, and finding information online before it arrives to the store. The Mary Poppins effect is really just a description of what Mary Poppins sings about in the in her famous verses saying a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. She understood and communicated this when it comes to children that we actually need to find a way to make it enjoyable to pursue goals, but it turns out that adults are wired the same way as kids, maybe a little bit less uh, it's a little bit less extreme. We have a little bit more ability to exert self-control. Our prefrontal cortex is more developed. But just like kids, we are present biased, which means we care more about instant gratification than long-term rewards. And rather than trying to work against that, what we need to do is lean into it and try to find ways that we can make it more enjoyable in the moment to do the things that are going to help us achieve our goals in order to serve um, a, a, the long-term benefit. So it's a mistake to constantly be looking for the most efficient path to achieve your goal because you will quit at a higher rate than if you look for a path that you will find pleasurable. And we've done research on a topic called temptation bundling, which is uh, when you find a way to link something you find tempting with a chore that you would otherwise procrastinate on, this is a way of using that Mary Poppins insight. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. For instance, you only let yourself exercise while indulging and watching your favorite lowbrow TV show on Netflix. That's an example of temptation bundling. Or you only let yourself listen to your favorite podcast while you're doing household chores. Or you only get to eat a really unhealthy but delicious meal when spending time with a difficult mentee at work. So those would be temptation bundles. And we found in our research that through temptation bundling, we can help ourselves achieve more. It's another way of using this Mary Poppins effect. So as 2023 comes to a close, if the insights in today's episode have sparked your curiosity, please remember to subscribe. We're looking forward to another year of delivering unparalleled insights from the Wharton School.